Welcome to the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd, Pelham, Alabama podcast. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you've gathered us together here to be in your assembly, O Lord, to hear your word, to receive it, and to go forth from these walls and to not only to hold to your word preciously, but also to let it pour out of our lives. You, O Lord, have taken us broken, brittle vessels and you have filled us up. Fill us up again, O Lord, and let our cup overflow. And let us, O Lord, pour out all that overfill into the neighbors we encounter. In Christ Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. The unexpected is what we come to expect in life, right? There's always a challenge, always something new that's happening. Meanwhile, some other things, they, they, they never change. We even say to ourselves, drawing from Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. No surprises. Yet, paradoxically, we also say to ourselves that you never know what life is going to throw at you. It's real interesting how we attribute the surprises in life to life itself, as though life was the thing throwing something at us. However, nothing is unexpected for our Lord, for our Savior Jesus Christ. Our Lord, our God, He stands outside of time. He exists outside of time. He's the very creator of time itself. He knows what will come, and He has a plan even for those mundane daily tasks that we do day to day. Those tasks that we know are coming as Monday knocks on the door. And we can't help but even think about it right now in this moment. Yet God draws near when the unexpected surprises grip our hearts in life. And they give us pause, even concern, even fear when we're honest. Now this morning, we find Jesus fresh from his temptation with Satan. After the call of Andrew, Simon, Peter, James, and John as his first four disciples, we find him fresh from his preaching of his gospel that the reign of God is made manifest on earth, or the kingdom of God is at hand, as it says in many of our translations. Mark one twenty one. Mark one twenty one tells us that Jesus goes into Capernaum, a small hamlet there on the coast of the Sea of Galilee, and Capernaum, it's a fishing village. It's neighboring the nearby village where Jesus has called his first four disciples. And St. Mark, in his typical manner of writing, he tells us that Jesus and these disciples immediately, immediately, without delay, enter into the town. But not on any day. They enter into Capernaum on the Sabbath, Mark records. And Jesus enters into the synagogue and was teaching. Now notice that Jesus' ministry is to his people, the Jewish people first. He goes into the synagogue there on Sabbath where people will be coming together to honor God, worshiping God, avoiding work, and there to listen to what the rabbi has to say after the reading of the word of God. And so Jesus goes and finds his people, his very same people he called out from Egypt, and he gathers and teaches them, much like many other traveling rabbis would do, going from town to town, teaching from Sabbath to Sabbath. As a matter of fact, St. Paul will model this practice as well. When he's commissioned as an apostle of our Lord, when he travels throughout the Roman Empire, 
And if you're familiar with the scriptures, you'll recall that the center of Jewish worship is not the synagogue. It's always been the temple. The Old Testament, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant constantly speaks about the temple. As a matter of fact, the Gospels talk a lot about the temple because of what Jesus has to say about the temple. The Old Testament reveals the creation of the temple going back to the tabernacle, that tent that traveled with the people of God while they're on the move from Egypt heading to the promised land. And the tabernacle, which exists as this tent that is the temple, that is mobile, exists for many, many years, even during the early reign of the early kings of Israel. David, King David, the second king, wanted to build the temple, but God revealed to him, it's not for you to build. That's not your calling. It's not your vocation. It's for your son Solomon to build the temple. And King Solomon builds this glorious temple, a temple that will be destroyed. But even after the destruction of Solomon's temple, there will be a second temple, a rebuilt temple. And both of them are permanent structures built by stone, built by man, not temporary like the tent that is the tabernacle. The temple is crucial, crucial for Old Testament worship. It's where the high priest will go and offer intercession for the people, making sacrifice, making offerings of thanksgiving, offerings for remediating sin, offerings for purification for the people of God. But where does the synagogue come into all this? Jesus is not in the temple. He's not in Jerusalem. He's in Capernaum, in northern part of Israel, at a synagogue. Synagogue isn't mentioned expressly in the Old Testament but suddenly here we are in the New Testament and it mentions synagogue. Apparently it must be important enough for Jesus to go to because he visits the local synagogue and he'll continue doing so, even this small fishing village. Therefore, we need to know and understand a little bit more about what these synagogues are. Well, the synagogue system, it develops during the exile of the Jewish people. Remember that God's people had the promised land. They had it for several hundred years. They sinned and rebelled, sinned and rebelled, the occasional repentance, they sinned and rebelled. And then God enacts what he had long foretold, even to Moses, that your people will go into exile. That the pagans, the Gentiles, will take them and remove them from the land. But I will bring them back. Well, during that exile, the temple was destroyed. King Solomon's temple. The Old Testament teaches us that the wickedness of the kingdoms, after they split in the northern and south, continued to where the northern kingdom was taken first by, by the Assyrian Empire, taken into exile, never to return. The southern kingdom, Judea, is taken into exile a number of decades later by the Babylonians. And the Israelite, the people of God, are exiled into these Gentile kingdoms for decades with no temple until the southern kingdom is finally allowed to return and to rebuild the temple, which is not like the glories of the King Solomon's temple. And this happens prior to Jesus' incarnation, God the Son becoming God in the flesh, Emmanuel. Now, since the Gentiles had destroyed the temple and therefore it suspended the ability to do Old Testament worship by doing the sacrifices, the question is, what are the people of God to do now on the Sabbath? The temple's no more. We are in exile. We are dispersed. What can we do? enter into the scene, the synagogue. 
which had existed in some parts before then, aspects had, but the system really starts to build up and quickly arises and spreads, especially during years of exile, and it even continues on after the second temple is built, after the return from exile. And typically in synagogues, even to synagogues to this day, you have a replica of the Ark of the Covenant, and within it is the law, the Torah, sometimes the prophets and the writings, what we would call the Old Covenant, the Old Testament writings, placed within it. There's an elevated platform or a pulpit for a rabbi to teach. Candles will often adorn the place, including menorahs. And sometimes there's an eternal light kept before the Word of God. And some of this just start to sound familiar to us. And it should be no surprise, for much of the liturgy of the Word, the first half of the service we're doing now comes from the synagogue worship. And synagogue itself, a Hebrew word that can mean house of prayer, or it can also mean house of assembly, much akin to the Latin word ecclesia, or church as we translate it, comes from a word meaning this place of gathering, of assembly, of the people of God together. And the synagogue is interesting because it would even have different liturgies, depending upon the holy calendar of the Old Testament. The feasts and the festivals of the year. This is sounding familiar, isn't it? There would be worship every Sabbath with singing and chanting of psalms and the preaching and reading of the scriptures from the law, the prophets, and the writings. And perhaps the local rabbi or a traveling rabbi would come and expound, preach from those scriptures. Sounding really familiar now, probably. <coughs> Well, let's enter into today's scripture in Mark 1, 21, where Jesus is presumably asked there by the leadership, teach, share us a word here at this Capernaum synagogue. They likely expected him to teach like most other traveling rabbis, a good word based upon the written word of God, perhaps a hopeful message about Messiah's promise coming, perhaps some insight as to some old, wise, ancient, learned rabbi, what they had commented on the scripture. A message that would perhaps, despite the day-to-day mundane and suffering living of that time, that the oppression of God's people will end. Well, this little country synagogue got way more than they expected. For Mark 1.22 tells us, quote, They were astonished at his teaching, or dumbfounded to such a point that it was as though the wind was just knocked out of the very listeners. That's the kind of astonishment that they had. What did we just witness? What did we just see? Have you ever had the wind knocked out of you because of Christ's teaching? Have you ever been surprised at who Jesus Christ is? Have you ever encountered the unexpected Savior, the one who has power over death, the poor Jewish son from obscure Nazareth. These listeners in Capernaum were surprised at the unexpected sermon that Jesus delivered that day. And we don't have the contents of that sermon, but we see its results. Mark tells us the response from Jesus' teaching was that, quote, it was though they realized that he is one who has authority. He's not preaching as one of the scribes. Now, before them, they have heard not from a mere rabbi, but they have heard the word of God himself 
there in their little old country synagogue, speaking as though he's the very one who wrote the law, wrote the prophets, wrote the writings, when in fact that's exactly who he is. God has visited his people. God has become one of us. That's Christmas, what we've been celebrating. That God has become not only one of us, but he visits his people just as he promised in the prophets. They would go and visit them. And he expounds the very scriptures that he's authored by his Holy Spirit with authority. But these Jewish listeners, they ironically, they don't put the two and the two together. They forget what Moses told the Israelites, which we heard in our reading in Deuteronomy 18. Namely, when he says to them, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him that you shall listen. Just as you desired the Lord your God at Horeb, there on the day of assembly, Moses is referencing, just as you gathered together on that mount, and then he goes back, he says, quote, When you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Lord my God was booming, and it gave them fear. And Moses says, just like on that day, when you said, let's not hear again the word of the Lord. Let's not see this great fire anymore, lest we die. And the Lord said to me, Moses continues quoting, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, meaning Moses, from among their brothers. It will be one of them. And then God continues in Deuteronomy, and I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I have commanded. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. God is doing exactly what he promised to the Israelites. What he exactly he promised to all of us, the people of God. He sent himself, God the Son, to speak exactly his words because he is the living word of God. And here we are in this little country synagogue and he's expounding from the very word of God while he's fulfilling the very word of God. And indeed, these surprised, these astonished uh, Capernaumites, they don't even realize that Deuteronomy in their presence is being fulfilled this very day. They don't realize that they are looking at and hearing from God's final prophet, Israel's true king Israel's great high priest and sacrifice is the one who is teaching with authority because he's the only one who has authority. The very same one who spoke to Moses there on the holy mountain, who caused the people to fear hearing God's voice, he's the same God who has sent his only begotten and beloved son who has now become man and is speaking to them from that pulpit. The scrolls, that have the law, the prophets, the writings. They were rolled up. They were placed back into that ark, that replica there in the synagogue. The same time that the living, walking, breathing ark of God, who authored those same scriptures, stepped down from the pulpit. But then life interrupted. The unexpected happens. A surprise occurs. No sooner has Jesus finished teaching in power, in might, in authority, than immediately, Mark again records, immediately, as he loves to point us towards. Verse 23, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, that is a demon. This unclean spirit is unclean because it's rebelled against God. 
It has rebelled against God Almighty and has aligned instead with Satan and his great rebellion. And this demon cries out in verse 24, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. It's a fascinating set of three sentences there, back to back to back. So short. Just one verse contains them, and yet they're so chock full of insight. The demon-possessed man, he could be possessed by more than one demon because he speaks out and says, what have you to do with us? And we'll meet later on in the scriptures someone possessed by a legion, referencing a unit of a Roman army possessed by many demons. But then again, it could be referring to all demons in general, asking Jesus, what have you to do with us demons being implied? But regardless of what he meant, that possessed man, who through this demon asks a second question. He says, have you come to destroy us? And that question in and of itself, it may seem strange. Have you come to destroy us? Where is that coming from? You're coming out of the blue. Here we are in the synagogue, and, and all of a sudden you speak up and interrupt everything. That should make us think back to earlier in Mark 1. Because Jesus has defeated Satan in the wilderness after the temptation. And remember, Satan leads the rebellion of angels who become the demons that have possessed this poor man in the synagogue. The demons, they know their time is limited and that God the Father will one day make good on his promise there in the Garden of Eden to send the promised redeemer of mankind to crush the serpent. And now here he is, Emmanuel, God in the flesh. The snake crusher is here And it's not the people who are listening to Jesus who recognize him. but It's the demon in the possessed man who confesses for the first time in Mark's gospel precisely who Jesus is in verse 24 when it says, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. For you see, the Jewish congregants in this congregation, those there at the synagogue, they only recognize Jesus as he's Jesus of Nazareth, which is the first name the demon calls him by. But by the end of the demon's discourse, he cunningly reveals that Jesus is the Holy One of God, echoing the language that's right there in that ark, in those scrolls just rolled up, there in Daniel and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Hosea and the Psalms, that God himself, the Holy One of God, is the one coming to be our Redeemer. But why would the demon wish to reveal who Jesus is? There's two things going on here. The demon names Jesus. He outs him to a certain extent. And knowing someone's name in the ancient world, it conveyed great power. We see this even today. When you name someone, Andrew, you draw their attention. They immediately sit, look up, and stop doing what they were doing. It's why God names and renames those whom he calls. God has power over his people and he calls them for his purpose. God rebukes and he restores his relationship to those whom he names. And it's why in the revelation of St. John, that John tells us that God has placed his holy name on the foreheads of his redeemed saints. So this demon is trying to pull a fast one on Jesus. But as we're about to see, Jesus will show that his gospel The kingdom of God is at hand and is about to be demonstrated in its full force. 
Now, the next reason, the second reason why the demon outs Jesus is the Holy One of God. It's an attempt to derail Jesus' earthly ministry, which has only begun just a few verses before in, in Mark chapter 1. Jesus just started, as we learned last week, about proclaiming the reign of God. The kingdom of God is at hand. And now here we have this demon trying to stir up the people into a riot by stating, the Holy One of God is here. It could ruin Jesus' ministry, potentially, because the people could either act hastily and stone him. How dare you say you're the Holy One of God? Or they may say the King of David is here, and they rush to enthrone him. But it's not yet his time. And we're going to see, as we're journeying through Mark's gospel this year, this is one of many times in which we see Jesus will cut off or cut short someone who's saying who he is, or will tell them, remain quiet. And Mark will explain, for his time had not yet come to suffer and die upon the cross. And so indeed, the time was not yet ripe. Because Jesus, in verse 25, he rebukes the devilish spirit. He shows the devilish spirit, you have no claim over me. And he commands him, be silent, come out of him. And the demon is reported by Mark to cause that poor man to start convulsing. Because the demons, they want nothing more than to hurt, to harm, to defame, and to destroy us. And why? Because we bear the image of God for whom they are in rebellion to. We are constantly a reminder to them that they have rebelled against their maker. And we bear the image of God. So they want nothing more than to pull us down with them. To keep us in the rebellion to God in which we're born in. But after crying out with a loud voice, Mark records, the man is freed from the chains of his possession. And this time, the same Jewish congregation, remember this happens in the middle of a service, the same congregation is recorded by St. Mark as saying that they're now amazed. They were astonished, now they're amazed. It's the same word which you could also use for not only being astonished, but even being frightened even downright terrified at what you have witnessed. And they echo that original surprise. They echo what they first said after Jesus taught. What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And yet they still do not identify him correctly like the demon did. None of them are reported as confessing, Jesus of Nazareth, truly you are the Holy One. God. Mark instead leaves us in this account with at once his, as Jesus' fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. His fame. So did you notice this in the scripture that the people are surprised, they're astounded, they're even put into fear. It's this amazing miracle that Jesus has done right before their eyes. Jesus is also taught with authority straight from the scriptures. And yet those same eyes, those same ears, they do not recognize or confess him as the Holy One of God. Do you recognize who Jesus is? Are you still stuck on his fame without knowing who he is? Notice how not even a miracle could convince or cause belief. Notice how not even preaching with authority, God himself, the living word, preaching from the word he gave, could open up the eyes. It takes faith. It takes trust. Pure, simple trust in who Jesus is. 
Well, perhaps you're a lot more like the demon in this scenario. Well, hold on now, surely not. I can hear your objection going on in your mind, but bear with me for just a moment. Because I've been here before. Because therein lies the problem. You can understand Jesus of Nazareth. You understand who he is. Yes, yes, he is the Holy One of God. Just like the demon confessed. You can say that's a fact. Just like the demons. It's knowledge. It's here. But until you know him as Savior, that he's the Holy One of God who is my Savior. He is the Holy One of God who is my Lord. He is the Lord of my life and I submit to him. He is my King and I am his servant. Until you confess that that is who Jesus is, you're merely giving lip service. Whereas St. James warns in his epistle, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Do not have the faith of demons, which is no faith at all. Do not stumble into the knowledge of the demons, but lack the faith of Abraham, who trusts in his Lord, who trusts in his Savior, who trusts that all the promises of God will be fulfilled. Recognize who Jesus is, the Holy One of God, your Savior and my Savior. The Savior we need because our sins are heaped upon high. And yet he is a gracious God whom when he was lifted up on high, took upon all the sins of the earth and washed us and made us clean and white as snow. Stop listening to those demonic lies that are in our lives that wish to destroy you and that wish to lead you to astray. That constantly ask, did God really say? God really said, God really accomplished, and God really did it once and for all upon the cross. So deny the demonic distractions in this life and be surprised at just who Jesus Christ is. Lord God in the flesh who took on all the demons and Satan could throw at him so that he might bear our error and make us righteous sons of God. Cast yourself upon Jesus Christ and he will cast out the demons from you. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>